Welcome to Neo Academia, where you'll hear real conversations with trailblazing thinkers outside the ivory tower. I'm your host, Natasha Mott, and today my guest Jason Snyder and I were literally outside tending gardens and whatnot before we recorded this. I asked Jason to come on because he's a co-founder of the Doomer Optimism Movement and a faculty member in the Department of Sustainable Development at Appalachian State. So we talked about the concept of Doomer Optimism, which would include the future of practical skills, education, and what it means to be in local and cosmo-local communities, especially in light of what a lot of people see as impending doom. Jason had a great perspective on the galaxy brain-like tendencies of intellectual ideas versus small-scale practical implementations that anyone can make. A lot of my conversations on this podcast are theoretical and exploratory, but Jason really inspired me to think practically about what all of this means for everyday life. I'm still trying to figure this out, but maybe we can figure it out together. If you want to leave a comment, I would love that. If you want to like, subscribe, upgrade, all that stuff is awesome. But ultimately, thank you for being here. I couldn't do this without you. I mean, I could, but I just wouldn't. (laughs) I also couldn't do this without support from Big Nerve. You know, that idea tournament game for innovative thinkers that I keep talking about. I've been working with Big Nerve for a while now to develop a community of innovative, creative thinkers, and their goal is simple. They want to recognize and fund creative thinkers. They're trying to create an entire new profession of innovation where catalysts like me could ask interesting and engaging questions and innovators like you can answer them. There are many different ways to play. You can ask questions, answer them, rate answers, mentor answers. All of this earns you points. At the end of the month, these idea tournaments pay out to the top 30 participants and everybody gains some more experience points and gets known for their expertise. This game is meant to elevate creative thinkers and their ideas. To join my team, you'll have to click on the Big Nerve question in the Theory Gang newsletter, where each episode I'll design a special question relevant to the guest and discussion. All right, here's the episode. Now don't forget to listen all the way to the end for the question. Well, recording on your phone is kind of what probably happens when you're a homesteader, right? It's like you can't have the ultimate high tech and have the awesome connection with nature, right? Right. No, that's a that's a that's a law of nature for sure. It's one or the other. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sacrifice something. You know, I was thinking about. I mean, it's hot as hell. I mean, you know, you, we're relatively close, like in our bioregion, right? Yeah. So, I I and I'm I lived in Florida for a while when I was growing up, and it was hell but this is a different kind of hell this like appalachian like humid hell what you're not from here right no not not originally honestly it's i I don't mind it very much i mean it's very humid but the high last year and it was an incredibly hot year was about 90 so far hasn't gone above 80 i can i can kind of manage that and i come from new mexico for the most part which was very dry hotter but very very dry and then i was i've been to a few places but before this i was in michigan and michigan summers and winters are hell so i'm not i'm not complaining about appalachian weather i think it's i think it's pretty mild to be honest okay wait we have a different experience because it's like 93 today so we have a different experience you must be out yeah in a better part (laughs) Well, I won't, I won't make that judgment, but we are at like 2,300 feet or so in Western North Carolina. Mm. So, I mean, we're, we have pretty good elevation, which, which definitely yeah. helps. Like on the, on the weather maps or the heat maps that, that are being passed around social media right now, like we're in that tiny little green strip where it's still mild. Like if you go 
you know, uh-huh. probably 50 miles one way or 50 miles the other way, we're out of that green strip. But we're, we're in the, okay. you know, in the nice zone, okay. fortunately. So we're definitely not, I mean, there's like microclimates within these regions, especially yeah. when you involve mountains. So we're definitely not in the same place. Yeah. Um, Middle Tennessee is special for, for a number of reasons. But mm. I like this, I, that like this is where our conversation first naturally goes, because I think this is kind of what Doomer Optimism's seems to be about is kind of relating on some kind of level whereas i think the the weather previously i would have thought how boring we're going to talk about the weather yeah but at the same time it gives us a lot of information about each other whereas i agree you know we're both farming like you posted your tunnel i guess you're doing pole beans on your tunnel yeah 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 and, and i'm doing i have a couple so the one i sent was my cucumbers and my watermelon but yeah it definitely like gives me a little bit more information about you kind of knowing what your weather's like. So right. it's, it's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, it, it's, I think it is a good topic of conversation. I don't think the weather is trivial at all. And a big part of what we focus on is how the sense of place really helps to shape your cognition, you know, how you think about the world. And I think if we just live on social media, a lot of that stuff often gets flattened and we disagree with somebody or we don't like someone's take. But they're projecting out or they're, they're, you know, they're putting something out from a very different context, right? And I think understanding that, that embodied context is really important to understanding someone. So, I, yeah, I agree. Well, that's the embodied cognition uh, mm-hmm. aspect as well that we, maybe we could get into because I think I was living in a different world up until COVID hit, I think. I was living very much in my head. Mm-hmm. I got out and did stuff. But something about COVID made us all connect with our physical reality. And I found you from a tweet you posted, I think, where it said something like, I think it's fine for you to be an intellectual, but y'all need to get out and do some manual labor as a, as a secondary requirement or even yeah. a primary requirement, something like that. And I was like, this guy... We're on the same wavelength because I used to be totally up here and now I'm like, okay, no, I need to be in my body to enhance what's going on in my mind. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely, you know, I, I spent all of my twenties and much of my thirties in school, you know, all the way through PhD. So I was very much in the same boat, very, you know, in my head, not a lot of skills, not a lot of common sense, to be honest. And I think I was having various psychological issues associated with that, uh, of not being more embodied. I got really into meditation for a while. And through the meditation, I started thinking about embodiment and embodied cognition because you're paying very close attention. But I think what that eventually led to is like, no, actually being in your body really matters, right? Like, you know, wherever we're going, you know, the, the transhumanist future, whatever, we have to remember that, you know, physicality is still very important, right? We're not going to just upload our cognition to the cloud and live there without consequences. So that tweet was really just kind of telling myself in a way that like, yeah, you know, you were kind of a basket case until you got a shovel and started digging in the ground, right? And you just kind of start learning some some real tangible skill, real tangible skills. So, you know. That sounds crazy though. Does, I mean, it sounds crazy to think that you have to get a shovel to be able to think clearly, but it's it's so fucking true. Mm-hmm. I mean, you need to be present. I think detachment is really important for very difficult psychological cognitive concepts. 
but without some grounding in reality, yeah, that that detachment, you're you're you know, you're going to float away into outer space. I mean, it's yeah. What are you doing? Yeah, boy, this is a this is a whole rabbit hole of a topic. Yeah, I mean, okay. I think there's there's two kinds of cognition that I think are important to balance and kind of a reinforcing feedback loop. There's the embodied cognition, and then there's the metacognition, right? And so I, when you're saying detachment, I think of this metacognition, which is also important. In meditation and mindfulness meditation, it's all about kind of detaching a little bit and note enough that you can notice your moment-to-moment experience without being kind of driven by it, you know, or without without it kind of immediately dictating your next, you know, your next set of behaviors. And so that metacognition is also very important, but there needs to be something that, you know, that you can observe that that is really attached to biophysical realities, right? And that's a big part of why I'm focused on these days and doomer optimism is like, you know, what about our energy? What about our food? What about all of the ecological collapse that that we're seeing? You know, what about climate change? You know, all of these things are very core kind of biophysical realities, our life support systems that, you know, many of us, myself included, have taken for granted for so long. It's just, it shows up. We trust in our supply chains that'll get us what we need when we need it. What if that's not always going to be the case? Or what if it's going to be much harder to get things because we are undermining, you know, many of our life support systems. And that's, you know, that's a whole conversation that we could talk about. But yeah, and so for me, it, it, you know, it was like the spiritual, psych, mental connected with like my, you know, newfound appreciation for the biophysical challenges that we have as society. And then that all came, kind of came together what I'm doing now. Yeah. So, well, that's a good segue to actually introduce like what you're doing. I never do introductions. I just, no, I, I just, how you just floated right in there. That was great. I just go right in the conversation because I don't know, I think it's important to get into a conversation and then we can kind of back out of it. Like, I, and it's more for me and the guest. Yeah. I guess it's for the, for the listener as well. Cause I want them to feel like they just walked into our conversation. Yeah. Like we kind of know each other a little bit, like teeny bit. And then they kind of walk in. It's like, we're all meeting for the first time and kind of, this is how you get to know people. Yeah. So I found you on Twitter and I saw you have this, you're going to have to explain exactly what it is, but I saw you have this kind of collective called Doomer Optimism. And that the, the phrase makes sense to me. It's like, okay, shit's about to hit the fan, but like, it'll be okay. Or, you know, we have to try and think of it as being okay. Mm-hmm. So I know it's a podcast series, mm-hmm. but what else are you doing with this? Well, it's mainly a podcast series and it's a collective because we we try and encourage as many people to take ownership as possible. So we've had, I think I counted it the other day, we've had about 30 different hosts or co-hosts and about half of those have hosted more than once, right? And so we have this thing where, you know, once we've, especially once we've interviewed somebody, they seem, we all seem to be vibing, then they also can host and have their own conversations that they're interested in. And so that's that's one part that I'm really excited about with the podcast, I mean, the, the next step is, you know, it's kind of, there's a, there's a core irony to the whole project and, and that we're talking about getting back to the tangible things of life, you know, as, is a big theme, not the only theme, but it's a big theme, but we're doing it over the internet, right? We're creating more internet content, right? So this is like the ultimate irony. And so the way I kind of bridge that gap in my mind is that I use this term cosmo-localism, which is basically... We need to try and find the best of both worlds, right? We need to find the best of, you know, rediscovering community, you know, having a better sense of where our food comes from, where our water comes from, all of these things. But we also, you know, this ability for me and you to talk to each other over a, a certain distance or to me to talk to somebody 
in Brazil uh, and share experiences, I think is really valuable. And it's also a core part of what we're going to need as quote unquote humanity to kind of make this next evolutionary step uh, in order not to destroy ourselves. So the cosmolocalism part, you know, so part of it is like building out a network. Network is like people I connect with that I'm not physically living with, but it's also trying to build community and using the network to build community. So we've had like some various meetups of people who have either traveled to visit each other or have found each other through the network. So one of my best friends is an hour away. He found us through the podcast and he's now one of our biggest hosts. But we help each other out on a lot of projects. He has a kind of a farmstead. He's selling at the farmer's market now. We help each other out there with various things. So that's an example of where the network has helped build community. We've last year, we had a number of just kind of workshops or gatherings, not as many as we would like. We were hoping to have like several. And I think there were like two or three, the three, if you count our little piddly one where people showed up, where people just basically got together, processed chickens or, you know, did whatever they're going to do, usually kind of farm stuff. So that's, that's another thing. We also have like a book club. So we've had several groups like studying Wendell Berry's latest book. So, you know, so that's the stuff like that. I guess is like build out the network, have good conversations, try and meet up in person and try and intellectually engage with each other as well as physically engage with each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, so one of my longtime followers, listeners tried to get me introduced to these, this, a group in Tennessee, kind of like this, and maybe you might be interested. I'm sure he's going to listen to this and be like, oh, you know, I told you about that. It's kind of like a bunch of homesteaders. It's people who tried it. Like you said, they, pro- they had an event where they processed chickens. I wonder if you were even at that event. Maybe that was... I, I, um, I have not. Okay, it was a large, it's a pretty large event in yeah. Tennessee. But what I've found here is that there is a very distinct divide between left and right politically. So there's, and it does not seem to matter so much when it comes to this level of involvement. So I'll give you an example. So like my friend who sent me that is very right leaning, mm-hmm. uh, very religious has like a fuck ton of kids and lives by, I think, religious, you know, religious values and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But we kind of agree on some similar things like, you know, raise your kids and, you know, grow your food and maybe don't be connected to the Internet all the time. Mm -hmm. But I consider myself pretty left leaning. Mm -hmm. So this is a dichotomy. But then again, I live in a neighborhood which is kind of rural. We're in unincorporated. It's kind of rural. Half of us have an HOA, half of us don't, but I have almost an acre. And I posted up to my Facebook group uh, in my neighborhood saying, I'm thinking about getting some chickens. Who'd be interested? Mm-hmm. And these bougie motherfuckers freaked out. Mm-hmm. So these are like the middle of the road neolibs. I'm like, why do you live in unincorporated? If, if you don't want to have chickens, they're dirty. They bring animals. We live next to a forest preserve. So what I'm trying to say is like out here, there's us mm-hmm. type people who are down with this type of living. Mm-hmm. And we're left and we're right. But then there's this middle neoconservative, neoliberal. Mm-hmm. It's on both sides in the center kind of. Yeah. That they hate it for some reason. They're scared of it. They think it's crazy to do this. Right. What is that? Yeah. Well, I've definitely noticed these dynamics. And I, I have to say that, you know, I think I've I've gone through many phases in my life. But the last major phase was, you know, when I was being trained as an applied economist, as a technocrat, you know, my views were probably more in the neoliberal camp. That switched quite a bit. I'd say the common theme is that basically, you know, counter to neoliberal and neoconservative kind of sensibility. Now that said, 
you know, so counter to those sensibilities, also trying to connect over these practical things. But as you mentioned, these other cultural tensions do inevitably arise and they certainly have endomer optimism. So what we've tried to do, I mean, we have some boundaries where it's like, okay, no white supremacists or neo-Nazis, none of that bullshit. You know, if you're like a Leninist or a Maoist and you're, you know, trying to come in with the state to like dispossess everybody, you know, none of that bullshit either. Right. So it's like chop off these kind of extreme ends. Then with that, you know, the idea that I've kind of come to is there's a lot of fighting and doomer optimism, especially on Twitter. And people notice that there seems to be a lot of drama all the time. Podcast is very different. The podcast is usually because it's, we have so many hosts, there are hosts that are more kind of conservative leaning and hosts that are more left leaning, you can say. And the conversations are usually very civil. I myself am pretty left leaning according to a lot of criteria. But at the same time, I see if we're going to evolve as societies, we're going to have to figure out how to get along with each other. And, and so some part of the contemporary left, I'm a little bit annoyed by, like some of the purity spiraling stuff and everybody who is slightly conservative is a Nazi or something. Like, I just don't jive with that. You know, I, I try to understand other points of view. And I think most of the kind of the core people have that sense as well. But we, there is definitely battles over cultural issues and it does get kind of feisty at times. We have managed to kind of keep it together. There was recently this thing where some people were more like reactionary Catholic or like, is like our way or the only way is the only way. We basically had to turn our backs on them and say, look, one of the core principles here is that it has to be a pluralistic movement, right? Uh, religious people and religion is perfectly fine to, to have as part of the movements. We have lots of religious people involved. We have lots of conversations about religion on the podcast, but there can't be a, you know, like a religious test or something like that, or an anti-religious test or something like that, right? So I think trying to hold it together as a pluralistic movement where, okay, like not everybody has to get along. Another analogy I like is, you know, at first we were trying to be a big tent movement and now we're saying, no, let's, let's think of it more like a campground where people can get together, visit each other's tents, but each tent can kind of be doing their own thing, right? Like the lived and the conservatives don't always have to hang out with each other, right? They just might not, they just might annoy each other. So they could just hang out in their own, in their own places. But as long as there's kind of like this meta minimum viable pluralism associated with being part of DO, then hopefully it can, it can work. Minimum viable pluralism. I like it. So this is interesting, though, because I think what I imagine when I think about this movement is more of the degrowth narrative. But the the I, I find so much irony in this, because if you look at these what people are calling kind of the alt right or the trad mm -hmm. people, you know, Ted K passed away recently, and mm. I've done a lot with Ted K. Like, my most popular YouTube video is me reading the Unabomber Manifesto. And I did a lot to, like, look at his philosophy. Ultimately, I find it to be horribly flawed. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people now, like, look at me as, like, the Ted K girl. Like, oh, you're, you're into anarcho-primitivism. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, I'm not. But I think that the, the right is, is kind of on that vibe. Mm -hmm. And the left is a little bit on that vibe, and they don't even realize it. But the, the common thread is that we find where we're at to be incredibly dystopian. Mm -hmm. It's techno-fascist and dystopian, mm -hmm. and we don't want it. Yeah. But what I... What I've been hearing from the left, because they believe in this collectivist perspective, is that we need this kind of top-down degrowth platform yeah. and, and then hopefully also grassroots so it kind of meets somewhere in the middle. 
And I'm pretty sure my right-leaning followers, when they hear the word degrowth, are going to shit bricks. They're going to be like, what? Yeah. That's stupid. Yeah. So what do we what do we do here with with this dichotomy? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, a lot of people associated with DO are kind of, you can say, more on the Luddite side. Although I prefer to say appropriate technology, having discernment about which technology you want to take on, which is not necessary or just purely conspicuous consumption oriented. Um, but we do also have people who are like big into nuclear, want to go to Mars. We do have more, let's just say, tech enabled perspectives in DO as well. And we have, we have those conversations on the podcast going back and forth. In terms of like the degrowth stuff, yeah, we've had a lot of conversations about it. We generally don't use the term degrowth because we do associate it with a more of a top-down technocratic point of view. And, and that's definitely something that most of us kind of reject. For me, I mean, the, the core kind of, you know, one of the core factors is, is scale, right? Like what scale are you doing? So if I was saying I'm more left, which is generally more collectivist, to me, that's like at a community scale, right? Where like you have a commons, you might have workers cooperatives, like that all sounds great to me, right? But having kind of a top-down statist approach, I understand why people say that's necessary because it's such an emergency that this is the only way to do it. But I, I just think that it's going to go terribly wrong. And a lot of people are not going to go along with it. And so for me, like, it's, it's more about, you know, there's, there's a John Michael Greer quote, collapse now and avoid the rush, right? Which is basically by trying to find more tangible meat in your life, by growing some of your own food, in some ways, you're necessarily going to be less efficient in the pure kind of economic sense where you're ignoring all the externalities. Uh, you're ignoring a lot of things, but it's less efficient. And so in a way that there's kind of an implicit degrowth happening there while right. promoting kind of a more localist or cosmolocalist sensibility. If you're producing more of your own stuff, you're probably going to waste less, right? Because you see the real value of things because you, you put in sweat equity into it. So you'll probably be less wasteful. You'll be less consumeristic. And so I, I think that we do recognize that at least degrowth has defined as a decrease in material throughput in a linear economy, extraction, throughput, and waste, right? You have this linear thing. And it's on a smaller scale, though, kind of the smaller scale of that you're hoping will like, you know, transcend and affect the larger scale. Well, I mean, the, the idea for me is that it is smaller scale, but it's also networked, right? So that's the networked or cosmolocalism part where I'm pretty influenced by kind of the social anarchists where they basically focus a lot on community on the municipal scale, but they're also connected in solidarity with people all around the world. Right. And that's kind of the philosophy behind that. And so it's kind of a, I, I often don't like to think it's a broad scale movement, not a large scale movement. Broad scale is that it's many different nodes scattered everywhere doing this thing, but they're all connected to each other and they're all sharing insights, proof of concept, support, things like that. And so mm -hmm. I guess for me, we do need degrowth in the definition of less material, you know, throughput in linear economy. But it has to be a grassroots movement. Uh, and if governments want to support the grassroots movement, that's okay. But once you start technocratically planning the economy, I, I think that it's just going to go horribly. Yeah. Right. Well, the number one thing I think is that it, it feels like a constant psyop. Like all these people, like the, the, the Ted K type people, they're, they're constantly mm -hmm. talking about psyops. They're constantly talking about Bill Gates conspiracy, WEF. Yeah. And I mean, it feels like eugenics in a sense mm -hmm. to do that because 
let's say you completely eliminate or you greatly reduce industrial meat production. Mm -hmm. That's going to affect people yeah. that you don't want that to affect. And so what I'm hearing from that side of things is like, oh, well, decolonization has to accompany degrowth. And I'm like, now you're talking about impossibility on top of impossibility. Mm -hmm. You know, these kinds of things are just fairy tale land. And when you have fairy tale utopia planning, you get shitty, violent results. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and that's what I see. It has, like you said, it has to come from the bottom up, from people like you see a reduction in industrial meat purchasing, then then it will have to adjust, right? And I, I don't know how to do that. But you were on a podcast with Daniel Schmachtenberger. Yeah. Which, by the way, you said like two words on that podcast. I, um, I know. I hope you have another one, but I just, yeah. I don't know. He has a lot to get... say. He, he does. Galaxy brain. And, and so I, 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 I pick my spots in that conversation. Yeah, you did. And you know, what was funny is like, while I'm listening to that, I hear I'm a podcast host. Uh -huh. So when you kind of don't know, like when you've got some giant galaxy brain idea, you ask more questions into it. Yeah. Like you, you're like, I'm not taking that and running with it. Right. It was hilarious but yeah the galaxy brain kind of thing i feel like he was talking about these lofty ideals and he had this yeah. high tech high nature scenario yeah but i heard like zero tangible small scale outcomes and that was where i felt like your voice was requested in the conversation yeah but yeah what you're doing feels like the implementation of that on a small scale yeah yeah so i mean I think I said this in the podcast, but I'm glad that there's people like Daniel Schmachtenberger thinking about these larger scale dynamics, what he calls multipolar traps, because you can create the most idyllic little eco village. And, you know, if the rest of the world is going to hell, these eco villages is probably going to get wiped off the face of the earth, right? It, 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 one way or the other. And so you can't put your head in the sand and ignore larger scale dynamics. I will also say that there are some things that, say, national governments can do to at least stop doing so much harm. For one, stop subsidizing fossil fuels and industrial agriculture, or at least phase it out over a period of time if you're worried about the consequences of cutting it off immediately. You can support or give grants for like bioregional field schools, like learning practical skills coupled with grants for communities to create community land trusts, right? To take okay. land and you know property and housing out of the commodification market, make it more accessible, to people who wouldn't normally be able to afford it and also learn the skills to, to be able to make you good use of that, of that land and build communities. And so I think, I, I do think that there was a lot of things that I, I recently had a tweet of like 10 policies out, out implement, which was kind of different from my style. I don't usually get into like policy, but there are some things that, that can be done or at least do less harm. The future is going to be tough no matter how you slice it. I don't know what the future holds. I think a lot of the societies that are that are seem to be worse off now might be better off in the future. A lot of agrarian societies in low-income countries, they're feeling a lot of the brunt of climate impacts and called debt colonial or monetary colonialism and IMF and WTO policies that, that have been rigged against them, all of these things for a long time. And yet they're still they're still surviving, right? They're resilient. Like give me an example yeah. of that. Like mm -hmm. it so sounds like you have one on the tip of your tongue, maybe. Well, I mean, the one that always comes to mind, I think a very prominent example is the Zapatistas. Um, you know, Not familiar. Okay, Southern Mexico, these are indigenous Mayan people. You know, they've been kind of a coherent group for 
you know, as Zapatistas for, you know, at least since the early 20th century, in 1994, I think 1994, NAFTA passes, they, they see this as an existential threat to their way of life because it would basically allow large corporations to come in, buy up their lands that, you know, they held in common and in commons kind of framework. It would also allow like GMOs to come in and basically infiltrate their their genetic varieties of corn, right? This is the cradle of corn in the whole world, greatest genetic diversity of corn. GMOs get in there and start mixing with these varieties. Then the companies can basically take um, intellectual property claims on it and, and basically take away their food sovereignty, right? So this is an example where the Zapatistas, they fought back. They rose up in a militant uprising and they won their rights to basically a third of the state of Chiapas, which is basically belongs to them, where they can practice their traditional ways. Now, there's constant tension, right? I, the, I don't think the Mexican government still is very happy about this situation. And of course, it's not a stable, necessarily stable situation. It has to continually be fought for. But this is an example where you basically have a society that have kept their traditional ways that have been very resilient, very low carbon footprint, eco footprint, whatever, whatever, degrowth society, you could say, and have a lot to teach the rest of us, right? Uh, even people say in, let's, you know, say in Appalachia, who are also trying to create their own kind of sovereign uh, economic and political systems, or say at a bioregional scale. Uh, I really like thinking in terms of bioregions. I think that there's a lot to learn from examples like that. But what, mm -hmm. what, what example were you going to give? Well, I didn't have one. I mean, I heard of one in India as well, where there's this um, state in India that's been kind of um, subsidized by the government to do less in a sense. And it yeah. sounds like, you know, a degrowth example. Is that Kerala? But, uh, the, the, Kerala? Is it Kerala? Yeah. Is yes. that right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, but it's, you know, it doesn't have the NAFTA example. But I'll speak towards capitalism mm -hmm. because it's unavoidable and it's a total power. And it's definitely the way that the, the entire world runs. And we have some places where you could kind of uncouple capitalism. It's kind of got its clutches around our, our economy, our governments and everything. And you could kind of tear it away. But when I try to think about the outcome of that, I wonder if we are losing something as to collective intelligence. So the guest that's going to be on after you is Jeffrey West. I don't know if you, you know who that is. Is he the scale guy? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. So he was president of Santa Fe Institute for a while, and he wrote the book Scale. And it's all about how, well, the, th the particular example I'm thinking about is how cities may be a form of collective intelligence. And mm -hmm. I'm also thinking, like, could corporations mm -hmm. also be a form of collective intelligence? Now, like, cities don't really die that we've seen so far, not too much. But corporations seem to have this very short growth trajectory and then they die or they get eaten or whatever. But if we, if we kind of let unfettered capitalism go, I think it's almost like a virus. And I think it's our job almost to uncouple these, these kinds of things from our individuality, lest we become completely beholden to them. Yeah. So I don't know. That's kind of what I was thinking about it. But one of the things in the U.S. we could do is, for example, overturn Citizens United. Yep. And, and I never that. hear anybody talk. I feel like mm -hmm. I'm a broken record saying this all the time. Yeah. I don't talk about political policy issues very often, but mm -hmm. I said this one over and over again. I'm like, why the fuck 
do we think it's okay for corporations to write the rules? Is this what we really want? Yeah. 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 Well, I couldn't agree more about that. I mean, I think a lot of doomer optimists have frankly given up on national politics and are like, we're going to create our own parallel societies because it's just otherwise we'd feel powerless. Right. And maybe that's, you know, I think maybe a little bit of both is good. You know, if anything, we're kind of, if we get politically engaged just more at a local level, like, you know, town, town council or something. But, you know, we do need people pushing for these larger national reforms as well. I mean, at least to do less harm, right? As I mentioned before, in terms of cities, so a big, a big area that I look at a lot is energy. And, and what would a post-fossil fuel world actually look like? You know, what would actually be viable in a post-fossil fuel world? And I don't think that, you know, in the, at least in the mainstream conversations, like, oh, well, we're going to transition to green energy technologies and be able to maintain our current lifestyles. And, you know, this could be a whole podcast, but there's, and we have had a whole podcast on it. There's several reasons, I think, why that's just not viable. Um, you know, one, we just, you know, 20% of the global economy, energy economy is run by electricity, right? All of these new technologies provide electricity, right? Liquid fuels is really what runs most of our heavy industry, most of our heavy freight, produces kind of the core materials of civilization, concrete, steel, plastics, fertilizers. All of these things are either fossil fuel products or we still currently require fossil fuels. Then there's the minerals aspects. You know, where are we going to get all, all, of, all of our cobalt from to go into our lithium ion batteries? Uh, are they going to come from very exploitative relationships with the Congo, you know, where you have child laborers and or otherwise just very exploitative supply chains? There's, there's a whole long list, you know, of, of energy. And if you think of cities before fossil fuels, cities just cannot get that big metabolically, right? If you compare it, if you right. analogize a city to a human body metabolism, we need a certain amount of energy coming in and we have a certain waste product, right? Cities couldn't get more than like half a million people. I think the largest city right. before fossil fuels was a million people. That was like the highest high watermark, right? Now we have, you know, dozens and dozens of mega cities all over the world. What's feeding this metabolism? What's bringing all of the resources in to sustain people? What's taking all of the waste out? Where is that waste going, right? At such a large scale, it's really hard to create a circular economy to reintegrate all those materials back into inputs into something else. And so I, I just think that a lot of people haven't considered that, okay, we need to get away from fossil fuels, one, because of climate, and two, because we'll eventually run out. Eventually, it's going to get more expensive to extract. It's going to be harder and harder to get to. And, and so the net energy is going to start declining. And then what do we do? And so I kind of think that a lot of these corporations or cities being kind of these eternal things, like like that doesn't really account for, again, some core biophysical realities. And, and so the question is then, well, this stuff isn't sustainable. It's not going to last. We better now build up the patterns, the infrastructure that will provide an alternative now, right? At a smaller, broad scale that can provide the best kind of transition that's possible. We don't know if that'll be a very catastrophic transition or a relatively smoother transition. We're obviously hoping for a relatively smoother transition to a, a, a less just extractive high energy economy that unless something like nuclear fusion comes online, probably can't be sustained. And even if nuclear fusion came online, that would solve a lot of problems. Perhaps we could recycle, provide the energy to recycle a lot more materials, 
still provides electricity. Some of those things get around with a lot of energy, but unless we change other core kind of incentive structures, the monetary system being based in ecological health, it'll just feed right. extraction even faster. And we might, you know, tone down the, the climate crisis, but we're still going to be cutting down rainforests and we're still going to be polluting, right. polluting, you know, rivers and, and oceans, losing topsoil, et cetera. Right. Well, I think this speaks to like Jevons paradox, like the idea that yeah. the more efficient energy becomes, the more we're going to use of it. And I think this is like a very much a conciliant property, because when you think about the affordances that have been made to try and help us decrease the amount of work we do or the amount of load we carry, it's only really increased it. Like I'm thinking about West's book where he's talking about how the, you know, the average commute has not changed now that more people have cars. It's mm -hmm. just we're willing to drive farther. Yeah. So there's some paradox there that even if we increase the ease of access to something, we're just going to like reach farther to get something else. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, there's some intrinsic motivation that we have to kind of push ourselves to some particular limit. And I think even if we solve the energy problem, like you said, there's this what is the word everybody's using in this space? Planetary boundaries mm -hmm. that we still have to come up against. Like, for example, I think about maritime law all, all the time. Mm -hmm. If we overfish the oceans, which we, we are, we're all fucked. Yeah. And then what? You know, this isn't just like a, a fishing problem. This isn't just a, oh, I don't get my sushi problem. Mm -hmm. This is a we all die problem. And I think the biggest problem with like degrowth, and even most of the climate change narrative, the Greta's of the world, all of this is that real people see through the theatrics and the facade mm -hmm. and they go, this is bullshit. And it's actually hurting the real problem. Mm -hmm. And that's what I appreciate about what you're doing. I'm like, this feels like a like tangible, real solutions. Maybe it's a little small scale. Maybe it is even a little bit naive. But unless we find ways to connect with each other, like I don't want to use the word organically, but directly. Mm -hmm or on a human level, mm -hmm. we're, we're going to be fussed. So, I mean, I'd rather have a, a thousand Doomer Optimism sites than like three Greta lectures because it's, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it just does nothing. You know, if you don't see it every day in your life, mm -hmm. you're, you, you have no involvement. So what are your plans for kind of expanding what you're doing? Yeah. Well, you know, just one, one day at a time. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, so. I'll speak about me personally. You know, I'm trying to balance making a living, helping to bring enough income to my family. Right now, I'm working a couple of odd jobs, trying to develop a homestead, trying to build my own community here. And being a relative newcomer takes a lot of humility and, and just a lot of learning. And then there's this kind of online network that I'm trying to help build. You know, I think we go through waves. Like we came out of COVID and there was a lot of energy. You know, right now in the news, everything, at least in the news, is less dramatic. For most people, it doesn't feel like the world is falling apart this instant, right? And so this is a time for us where I feel like, okay, we have our vision, you know, we have our, our theory of change, how things work. And so let's just slowly build out this network and build out our communities. And so just trying to reach people from different walks of life. The last couple podcasts that I've hosted, one was a community organizer in Oakland, uh, another one was a, a fellow Appalachian who's from here, right? And so I'm just trying to like build these networks because I think that's when the next shocks to the system come, and I think they inevitably will come, then we're in a good position to be helpful. 
right? When people will start saying, oh my gosh, the mainstream status quo is not as stable as I thought. It's more fragile. Who's thinking about this? Well, you know, there's several groups, including us, that have been thinking about this for quite a while, you know, and I've been thinking fast and thinking about it and thinking through all the various scenarios and developing the skills to live a different way. So I think probably, you know, right now we're kind of just slowly reaching out, growing. I, I think that in the future, as again, more difficult circumstances beset us all, then there, there will be just more impetus to like, okay, well, what are you going to do about it now? Like, like, do we need to grow? Do we need to, what do we need to do? Right. So I, I don't know if that answers your question. We're kind of in a, yeah. like, like, let's all take a breath right now. Yeah. Let's just slowly do our thing. Let's, yeah. let's, let's enjoy this period of relative calm while keeping our eye on the, on the goals. Yeah, no, I can appreciate that. And I think the danger even of my question is the optimization mindset, mm. the we need to fix this now. And the problem is not necessarily facing us. Mm. And I think when we try to plan too far ahead, we miss the mark. Yeah. And so it sucks to be reactionary, but sometimes good things come out of reactionary tendencies. And as long as the, the next thing isn't so catastrophic that it wipes everything away, this is how we proceed through trial and error. Yeah. And, you know, this isn't my normal podcast. Like, I don't think I've had a an episode of Neo Academia where I've been talking mostly about politics or yeah. economics, really. Or, I mean, we haven't gotten into the permaculture aspect yet. But I guess what most of the people would expect from me is to talk about education. Mm. Am I correct in are you, a, are you a professor? Do you teach at a university? So I'm currently, so I followed my wife here. She has a tenure track position in a department called Sustainable Development. I'm currently teaching as an adjunct there. You know, we're in a small okay. college town. We don't want to leave because we love it here so much. But, you know, I'm still kind of, so I'm at the margins, right? I teach my classes. I have very, I think, rich conversations with students. And I also work landscaping on the side, basically mm -hmm. as a laborer. Help okay. it, help make ends meet. Okay. So yeah, you could say I'm you can say I'm I'm a part of academia, but very marginally at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what you teach there, but I mean thinking about everything that you're learning and doing in terms of community development and literal sustainability, how could you imagine being able to teach these kinds of things in a neo academic setting? Or like if you mm. could redesign academia or higher learning, adult education. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about how you would do it? Yeah, I've thought. So, so one, the co-founder, so it was me and Ashley Colby at Redoma School on Twitter. Uh, she actually runs basically this kind of alt education. She, her and her husband live in Uruguay. They have U.S. students come out basically and get taught by like local tradesmen and farmers who are into like sustainable kind of building and sustainable ag and things like that. Uh, and she's also run classes. It's kind of associated with optimism, but it's her own thing uh, online, which I've like guest lectured in where basically, you know, 20 people are interested in a topic and she brings in a lot of, you know, really knowledgeable people as teachers and it's really informal thing. Right. And it's, you know, it's paid everything. It's affordable. And so that's, that's pretty interesting. I mean, my dream is to basically help evolve App State, where I'm teaching now, into more of a bioregional field school. There's people who I take inspiration from this. There's one guy, Joe Brewer, 
that cognitive policy where he's basically building something like this in Barachar, Colombia, and he's trying to build more. He's part of like the bioregionalist movement, you can say, but I'd love to be part of a teaching institution that one, just taught a lot more practical skills, especially, with, you know, living sustainably. So again, you know, natural building, learning how to fix things. How do you, you know, manage water systems, food production, of course, uh, various things like that. And, and do it kind of embedded in a bioregional context. Like watershed, right? what is the watershed, right? How do these different villages or towns within the watershed, you know, how can they cooperate together to produce better outcomes for all? Uh, that kind of thing. That's kind of a, a dream of mine, right? Like a long-term, a long-term vision to do that here. I think that would need to be coupled with some kind of community land trust movement. Uh, I recently just interviewed someone on the podcast who created an organization trying to address this issue of how do we make land more accessible in places, right? Mm -hmm. So you can, person can develop all the skills in the world, but if they can't afford to buy land or, you know, the equipment that they need, they're going to be out of luck. And that's a big problem for a lot of people of our generation and younger. Right? right. And so how do we teach people the right skills? And then, and then where do they go after that? How can they make a livelihood for themselves in this kind of new kind of economy? That, that we're thinking about right. ecological economy. So that's, that's really the model. You know, I, I think online learning, peer-to-peer -peer learning and education platforms are cool, but my dream is, is basically to be part of a kind of situated alternative learning institution. And, okay. you know, right now in our, our departments, so I'm also teaching sustainable developments. Our departments is very aligned in terms of values as me, you know, we might have slightly different theories of change, but are mostly aligned. And, you know, this is something that I feel like as we move forward, they could be a leader. This department itself could be a leader within the university and pushing for at least more and more resources going towards this kind of education. Okay. So it's still a formalized thing. I think there's a place for this. Yeah. I mean, I think we, I think the informal stuff is cool, but the problem is nobody takes it seriously. Right. And I think until there are some institutions that take what we're doing seriously and, and the things that the community wants, that the people want to learn, not for the sake of pencil pushing or pressing buttons or prompt engineering or whatever the fuck it is, but for actually using the knowledge in our day-to-day -day lives until there is more formalization of that mm -hmm. from the institutions. I, I, don't, I don't think it'll pick up any steam. You have to have buy-in as you rise up, you know, you have to get each institutional level buy-in for right. grassroots movement. Yeah. Um, well, that's very true. There's a lot of institutional barriers, which, you know, I'm kind of just waving my hands at and saying in the future, the incentive landscape will be vastly different once you <laughs> know, they, they realize, you know, I honestly think that the student debt issue and this whole kind of crisis uh, is going to blow up. And I, I think probably, yep. you know, a lot of people predict that a lot of universities will go bankrupt et cetera, et cetera, there's going to be a reckoning with higher education in this country for sure. Certainly now, if I were to try to push for this, I think I would just run into barrier after barrier. Uh, but it's also part of, you know, my, my longer term theory of change is that the people who are actually proposing solutions that accord with real biophysical realities at some point are going to get a little bit more momentum. That's, that's my hope, right? That's the optimal what part. Makes you think that? I mean, what, well, because of the idea that we're going to hit some crisis and it's going to, you're going to, we're going to be able to take that speed. Yeah. Or maybe people in this community start demanding these alternative kinds of educational opportunities. They see the writing on the wall that many universities are bankrupt. You know, this is a way to 
at least as an institution, still remain relevant, even if it has to reform significantly. Yeah. So I think it ideally it would come from demand from the ground up, right? From people mm -hmm. realizing that things need to change, that what we need to learn is very different than what's being taught right now. And yeah. that demand comes from kind of a popular movement. That's I, the I ideal. Think, <laughs> yeah. I think that coupled with collapse is going gonna, is gonna to do it because I moved here from Oregon. I loved Oregon. The problem with Oregon was the Oregonian government. And I, I feel like Oregon is kind of done a voluntary degrowth situation like they, mm. they have like bottled their own degrowth in a sense and they've mm. kept it that way and that's mm. part of it's part of some of the problems in Oregon but out here now living in Tennessee I see kind of the opposite problem where in Oregon it was kind of like eh, you don't have to work like did you see they just lifted the uh, 70 year law that you can't pump your own gas in Oregon oh, now no, you're no, no. Mm. Like I saw a tweet, it was like they legalized crack before pumping your own gas in Oregon. That's fine. But, but the opposite is true out here. Like they, they want you to work your ass off and grind yourself into the ground. Whereas out there, they're like, yeah, don't work at all. It's fine. Mm -hmm. And I think out here, what we're going to see is people not going to university as much because mm -hmm. they're realizing I could just go get a laboring job mm -hmm. and, and pay all my bills. I mean, yeah. I put, I saw something in my group that was like, Hey, I need someone to on Facebook or whatever. I need someone to dig a hole. And there was like 15 people who were like, I'll dig a hole. It's like a hundred degrees outside. Someone's like, I'll dig a hole. How much? Yeah. Whereas in Oregon, we had a pipe burst and it was, it was just like, well, I don't know if we'll be able to get out there in the next month. It's like, yeah. what? Yeah. So these kind of, these two extremes mm -hmm. I'm seeing here, it's going to lead to some kind of educational collapse because here they're not going to go to school. There they're going to go to school, but what are they going to do? Like they're not going to necessarily get jobs because of it. These people are going to have jobs. Yeah. So this tension is going to create yeah. some real issues for our higher ed scenario. Yeah. I mean, some people call it the overproduction of elites. And if I'm being honest with myself, I'm an overproduced elite. Pseudo though. What's that? No, I don't. No, I don't think so. I think it's a pseudo production. I, I, I've changed my mind on this yeah. thinking. Like, uh -huh. I thought it's an overproduction of elite, but it's also kind of pseudo elites because mm -hmm. if we were this elite in the sense of like the R one researchers, yeah. and I don't even know if that those people are what who are actually doing the research now. Mm -hmm. But we're something else. We're not the same breed as those people, the the techno fascist economists that you went to school with, who are mm -hmm. now doing the thing that they set out to do. We're not the same breed. So calling us an overproduced elite, I think, is a misnomer. We're not yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, that's, I kind else. of say that tongue-in-cheek. I mean, I do think that I spent a lot of time taking classes that probably weren't very relevant, learning how to crunch data that didn't really correspond with complex systems and, and reality, which I have much more appreciation of. But I think going back to your earlier points, I think it's going to be a big issue that, yeah, a lot of people talk about not very many people in the trades these days. And the people who are in the trades are doing pretty well for themselves. The mm -hmm. demand is so high. You know, why is that? Well, one, our, as our culture, you know, it's expected. I was, when I was, you know, in high school, I was expected to go to college. That was the expectation, even though I had some doubts. I went because that was, that was what people expected of me. There's also demographics as well, right? Like it's not as bad in this country, but in many parts of the world, there's a demographic crisis, right? The structure of the age population is leaning more and more towards elderly people. So, and especially in a lower energy future, 
where that requires more people doing physical labor, who's going to do that labor, right? Everybody is getting an undergraduate degree and expecting not to, not to have to do that kind of labor. And who's going to do it? Are we going to force people, a certain class of people to do that labor? That sounds horrible, right? Uh, part of why I'm, I'm always trying to encourage people of like, it's everybody's responsibility to, to try and do a little bit, right? Because we're all in this together and nobody is above working with your hands or nobody is above growing some of your own food. You know, I'd much rather us all realize, hey, maybe you're a great programmer or a physicist or something. That's great. You can spend most of your time doing that still, but maybe you should spend a little bit of time. Let's think about a community scale, right? Like everybody has their kind of specialty, but maybe everybody comes together to help with some of the more physical aspects of that community occasionally. And I think that's mm -hmm. much healthier. I think it's better for everyone's mental health. It lifts the burden on everybody. People are doing labor full-time. I think it's just, you know, we're going to, especially millennial kind of college age millennials, I think there's going to be a, a hard reckoning of like, no, we're not above this. No, we're not, we're not beyond it. We need to humble ourselves a little bit and yeah. appreciate the trades people and also learn a little bit of those trades ourselves. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, a part of the problem here is that if you're an excellent physicist, you probably don't know Jack else. Like, mm -hmm. I, I met this guy. Um, I remember when I was in grad school, he was a professor at University of Chicago. He's kind of a big, big name in his field, I mm -hmm. guess. And he came in and gave a lunch seminar. And he was so proud of the fact that he was like, I became a scientist because, as my wife says, I'm not good at anything else. Uh, she wants me to go grocery shopping. And I say, oh, I can't go grocery shopping. And to me, this felt like like weaponized incompetence, mm -hmm. not only against his wife, but against like all of society. Yeah, It's like, I, I'm not good at anything else. But it's also like you siloed yourself into this very narrow focus to get a job also because you're probably hyper obsessed with the thing that you're studying. But I think that's in general, probably bad, mm -hmm. not only for yourself, but for everyone around you. Yeah. It might create for certain individuals, it might create a breakthrough but mm -hmm. if you think about the way that innovation is going i mean look at the people who have innovated in the past i don't think they were so siloed i think they were much more integrated mm -hmm. and creative and we know now that creativity comes from kind of being a newcomer in some area and think about everything you could apply just because you're a physicist doesn't mean you shouldn't try to maybe teach physics to your kids or teach it to someone else or yeah. who knows what else you could do but People have this very like career oriented view of themselves. This is what I am. This is what I do. And all that's about to shatter if it hasn't already. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if we look at like the kind of the geniuses of say a few hundred years ago, they, they were like polymaths, right? That yeah. we hear the stories of like, they knew a little bit about every major scientific discipline and integrated them together. Of course, that's impossible today because, you know, there's so much out there. You branched out so much, but yeah, I think, you know, there's always a tension between specialization and generalization. I think as a society, just like we've, we've gone too far in the direction of large scale, we've also gone too far in the direction of specialization, right? Yeah. It's not either or, it's like some kind of happy, you know, dynamic medium. Absolutely. And yeah, we're just so far out on one end that, yeah, I mean, as long as in society you're able to take all of your basic needs for granted, your food, shelter, water, energy everything else, waste disposal, everything else, as long as it's running smoothly, then it's maybe it's okay. 
you, you don't worry about it too much. But <laughs> until you, most things come under question, we're gonna have a lot of people who are like, oh shit, what mm -hmm. do I do? And hopefully going back to the training part, hopefully there's at that point, there will be good training institutions that will be ready to, you know, very quickly help them get up to speed. So I'm thinking about like what you're talking about, Appalachia State. The Morrill Act was a way to get people funneled into universities around the time of a civil war because they knew they were going to be losing slaves. They were going to have to start paying people and training people to do agriculture. Yeah. And so all these land grants came about and all of the, most of the major universities were established because they were like, oh shit, we mm. don't have slaves. We need to reestablish our workforce. Mm. And I think much the same could be happening mm. now uh, where I, I can see this top-down degrowth stuff actually doing some good mm -hmm. if they try to bolster these support systems and these systems of resiliency, that could be some good coming from the top down. So I, I'm, I'm always suspect of these top down strategies, but I also look for like, how could we glom onto that and kind of make it better for everyone? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like categorically opposed to, to top down, but I always question, is it empowering communities to take matters into their own hands or right. enforcing an overly scaled you know, set of expectations right. that, that nobody wants to fit into. And right. it's, you know, if, if part of it is recognizing at a national or national level, hey, we need more learning institutions that teach these things and they want to provide more grants, right? Like, so one federal program that I really like is the Natural Resource Conservation Agency. And I think they've been doing great work. They're just vastly underfunded. Uh, mm -hmm. They do great work educating farmers about soil health and maintaining water reservoir and more agroecological practices. And that's, that's great, right? If they can provide actually the right kinds of education, but crucially, again, you know, allow communities to be able to feel like, you know, they have some autonomy in this process, right? And they, they can, I think more than feel like it. Yeah, I think they actually they absolutely do, do have autonomy in this process. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I hear you have little little ones in the background. How old are your kids? Five and almost a year. Okay. So you got a while to think about this. Mine is 11. Mm -hmm. So in seven years, I'm going to have to decide if, if she's going to college or whatnot. And she obviously right now, she's like, oh, I'm going. Mm -hmm. She wants to be a lawyer. But what do you think? Like in mm -hmm. 20 years, and 15 years, you think you're going to send them to college? It's hard to say. Like I'm kind of avoiding that question to see what things are like in 10 years. I will say that I'm sending my kids to public school right now, or I'm going to. If I was in a situation where everyone was saying that public schools are horrible, it's a, you know, it's a factory or it's just a horrible environment, then I consider homeschooling or something else really seriously. But as far as I know, everyone says they're, they're really good. We're going to supplement it with maybe like forest school or something else. I plan to be very involved with the school, you know, being very involved parents. And I, I'm hoping that that'll work for me because I, I really want... I'm not always like, there's always a question of, do we leave the current systems completely and try and create new ones or, or do we, you know, try and do something in the middle where right. we are developing our own things, but at the same time, we're still trying to reform from the inside. Yeah. In 10 years, it's hard to say. My ideal, which I would not try to enforce on them is that they stay around here. They go to, mm. if they go, do go to college, they go to App State. 
they go to our program. They take the very ecology yeah. track and yeah. they get into crafts or farming or something else. But yeah. they're going to have their own ideas. So we'll see. They'll know kind of my perspective on things, but they're going to have to decide that for themselves, right? I love that yeah. around because, you know, operating a homestead when you're 70 is hard. So having <laughs> grandkids around would be kind of nice. But yeah, I think, I think it'll take another 10 years before I really think hard about that. Yeah. Yeah. And your situation, I don't know. I mean, law, I mean, you know, we're going to need probably lawyers in the future. In, maybe, in the maybe if, I mean, if the blockchain people have their way, we won't, but I, I yeah. there'll always be people needed to interpret the law. I think Yeah. we won't want to give, that's one of the things we won't want to give over to AI, I think right away yeah. or even ever, because when you do that, you lose pretty much the essence of your human governance. Yeah. It's like, okay, now we are fully governed by artificially intelligent systems, which I think yeah. would be bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that's a whole other wild card that we haven't talked about is AI and how that's going to disrupt everything. I mean, but I think it's this looming thing that we know is coming. We know it's there. We don't know exactly where it's going to come in. But mm -hmm. I did this entire challenge last uh, season on my other podcast. We we submitted a world building application to the Future of Life Institute. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of flavors of like doomer optimism mm -hmm. as well, because the idea was you know, imagine a world where AI or artificial general intelligence, as they call it, mm -hmm. would be fully implemented for at least five years. And it's not a dystopia and everything's good. How did we get there? And they made mm -hmm. us do a timeline of events and metrics. And we had to write a story and all this stuff. And one of the things I think AI could really help with is education mm -hmm. and helping us to learn what we want to learn mm -hmm. didactically. Yeah. So that we can be more social. And I do have this high tech, high nature kind of fantasy about it because I'm out in my garden listening to a podcast mm -hmm. and that'd be great. It'd be also great if I had an AI assistant that could be like, oh, send this email because mm -hmm. I don't want to fucking do that. That'd be great. Mm -hmm. That kind of stuff. Cool. It, it's just, you know, the automaton stuff that I don't really want. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, this this could be a whole podcast conversation or a whole series. One of my hopes, I, I've tweeted a few things about AI, kind of a little bit, you know, ironically, but somewhat seriously as well. Like maybe, you know, we can get the AI to send emails to each other at Infinitum and we can we can come back to our real lives and physical, you know, relationships and everything. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, that's, that's kind of whimsical. I think Daniel Schmachtenberger, he talks about kind of just speeding up the arms race speeding up all of the arms races, multipolar traps that were involved with globally, just speeding all those up. That, that's pretty scary. A lot of the X risks. And then a lot of the white collar work will probably become obsolete. Um, right. What won't become obsolete? Mm -hmm. Well, I think biointensive agroecological farming is not going to be taken over by robots anytime soon. For example, hint, hint. <laughs> as a yeah, field engineers, yeah. like my husband owns a staffing company. And he's like, there's these new roles popping up. We call them purple collar jobs because yeah. you have to have, you know, the knowledge and ability to learn this significant programming on this apparatus. And then also the hands on ability to fix it when it breaks. Yeah, That's going to be a big thing in the next 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think the more that you can do, people can do things that AI couldn't theoretically do in the next 10 or 20 years. You know, what? The fantasy about having robots do everything coupled with AI, I, I think is not, I think it's probably pretty far out. They're just too clumsy still. Yeah. They will be for a while. 
but yeah. And then there's also the Jevon paradox you mentioned, you know, makes a lot of things more efficient. What are we going to do with all that, all that extra stuff, finance, energy? It's just going to keep expanding the, the industrial death machine. It's a little more <laughs> concern. Right. Well, well, a, this is a big topic, which I don't think we're going to be messing with right now. No, we're absolutely not. Um, but, you know, I love to wander into territory that's dangerously deep. But one thing, one distinction I think most people forget, and even me just thinking it and saying it to myself, robots are not AI. And I think people think that they're the same thing. Like, it's like, it, it's, it's fucking not. Yeah. <laughs> we suck at robotics right now. Yeah. We're really bad yeah. at that. These large language models, they're good at, like, saying stuff. Yeah. But even that's not full like ai just yet so we're, we're not there yet i think we will get there mm -hmm. but the robotics aspects you know we we're highly evolved we have a huge cortex to do fine motor movements so figuring out how to do that is going to yeah. be a challenge right well it goes back to embodied cognition right like <laughs> so we have circle. all of the materials metals energy we need to make all these robots and they can embody the language models that, you know, they're able to manipulate symbols with to do, actually do real tasks in the world. I think that's, you know, a pretty deep problem. It's a deep problem yeah. for us humans, the modern humans, and it's going to be a deep problem for AI-empowered robots. Right. I mean, like, look at the way we started this podcast. We could not even fucking figure out how to get the video. <laughs> right. Neither well, one. Yeah. So, I mean, both of us know where we're going, I think, in terms of like how we're going to proceed. But I think there's a lot of people out there that don't know what they're what to do next. And uh, I guess we could just close by, you know, maybe you could give some people some resources if they're interested in the movement and learning sustainability, permaculture, anything about this, you know, what do they do? Yeah, well, they could, you know, just search for Doomer Optimism podcast, wherever podcasts are delivered. I would recommend you were to get into it, you know, listen to a sampling of them because many of them are very different and have very different contents, mm -hmm. sensibility of the hosts, et cetera. So listen to a sampling of them. Yeah. I mean, with these other things like permaculture, I would just say Google permaculture and there's a whole bunch this of- This is the stuff. worst. This is the worst recommendation I've ever heard. You could say- you could just give some specificity, like what's your favorite Doomer Optimism podcast episode or like put some flavor on it, my friend. Oh, man. Well, the thing is, it's hard to pick a favorite because they're so, so different. Maybe uh, episode 50, we had a, I hosted a panel with Kay Raworth of Donut Economics fame, Nora Bateson, who is Gregory Bateson's daughter, uh, Ecology of Minds fame, and now she runs Warm Data Labs, which are all about you know, uh, embracing the complexity of our relationships. Joe Brewer, who I mentioned, who's running, developing these kind of bioregional field school models. And Daniel Christian Wall, who's been a, a key voice in the bioregional movement for a long time. And uh, we talk about what does regeneration mean? What, what does actually that term mean to them? Maybe I would recommend starting with that one. Yeah, that's one that I'm, okay. you know, pretty, pretty proud of. It's a little bit abstract. It's not like this is how you build a chicken coop. It's more conceptual, swimming conceptual yeah. space. Um, yeah. You yeah. can Google how to build a chicken coop. What you can't Google is where are people's heads at around this? The people who are running this movement, where are their heads? Yeah. That's, you know, I think that would be a good you. intro yeah. to kind of where, you know, some of my core influences. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this. This was just an absolute pleasure. And I, I, how do I, how do I get tuned into like meetups and stuff? I want to, yeah. I want to come out. 
Well, let's be in touch. We'll be in touch. I really, I really enjoyed this conversation as well. I think uh, we resonate on a lot of stuff and we're not that far away. I think I'll be having a chicken processing. I'm getting meat chickens in August. We're going to be inviting friends uh, to process some chickens and maybe turn into kind of a workshop as well. So I can invite you to that. Maybe I'll come. We'll have to get you on the the Doomer Optimism podcast as well. So yeah, yeah, we'll be in touch. And no, that sounds great. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Here is the Big Nerve Challenge question. How could people get involved in building resilient, sustainable systems in their local and cosmolocal communities? If you click the link in this episode, you should be able to join my team on Big Nerve and possibly make some money if you got a great answer. All right, good luck, y'all.